The word hope is used a lot. Drive around town, you'll probably find a church named Hope Church. Children are named Hope. The idea of hope is everywhere. But what is it really? What is hope? Are we to put our hope in people, somehow hoping and wishing that they will come through for us? Is hope blind and trusting? And is it something that we really have no way of knowing whether it's going to pass? Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, never claimed to be a Christian or even a religious man, but he still spoke of hope. In 2005, he said this, Death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be, because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. In 2011, the same year that Steve Jobs died, theologian Andy Crouch said this kind of thinking is, quote, a religion of hope in a hopeless world. Hope that your ordinary and mortal life can be elegant and meaningful, even if it will soon be dated, dusty, and discarded like a 2001 iPod. The truth is, even the most ardent atheist, we all place our hope in something. For many, it's themselves. It's their power, their intellect, their abilities to do something that they put their hope and trust in. They will accomplish everything they set out to do. For some, it's hope in others. Maybe that someone will finally come through for me, that they will stop letting me down, and I, I put my hope and trust in them that they will accomplish what I need. We all put our hope in something. Every single one of us. And for the Christian, it's the hope in that the Bible is true, that God is true to his word, that it is inerrant and it is perfect for us to understand who God is and what he expects of us. We put our hope in that. We hope that Jesus will return one day to gather up his people and uh, uh, create the new heavens and the new earth so that we could be in his presence and worship him daily. This is our hope. This is quite different, isn't it? The hope of the Christian and the unbeliever is worlds apart. There is no connection. This is the difference between us and the world. Today we're beginning a study through the book of 1 Timothy and these verses, these first 11 verses, deal with hope. What do we put our hope in? So Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor in Ephesus, an ancient city in western Turkey near the Aegean Sea. This was an important city, and this was an important church. John, as he wrote uh, his revelation, included the church in Ephesus as part of his seven churches. So this is an important story. In God's revelation to us. And young Timothy is the pastor. But there were leadership problems happening here. There were leaders who were using the Old Testament law in their teaching and they were growing in popularity. 
Timothy, being a young pastor, and any pastor can agree with this, was having trouble dealing with these controversies. What do you do when you have leaders, people who have a following, and who are drawing people away from the true gospel? What is it that we do? Well, Paul being the older Christian, the elder church planter, he recognized this, and he wrote this letter to Timothy. You say, well, wait, this is a, a book that's almost 2,000 years old. What does it have to do with me? We could replace the names and put us or put any other church, and this letter would make still perfect sense. Why? Because doctrine matters, truth matters, and ultimately the gospel matters. And when these kind of things are being debated and people are pulling people away from the true gospel, the church becomes impotent. We, we've lost our, our, our ability to speak truth into the world because we don't even agree on the doctrines here. And Paul is trying to bring these sides together. And I want you to notice how firm he is in handling these issues. He is what every leader wants to be, boldly standing for the truth and what's right, but doing it with gentleness and grace. Pastoral ministry, I've said, is, is less of a science and more of an art. There's really no definitive answer on how to handle some of these situations on a day-to-day -day basis. And Paul is saying, Timothy, you've got an issue. You've got a problem in your church. What's the solution? Well, the solution is who you put your hope in. All of these people are, are putting their hope in something other than the gospel. Bring them back. And if they won't come back, you name them and you send them out. Because they're dividing and splitting the congregation. And almost anything in ministry, I find myself hoping and praying that I have the excitement that Paul has for the local church. It's my prayer for all of you that, that you also feel this same excitement that Paul has towards the local churches that he planted. I pray that you come to every potluck and every event that we have. But a potluck is not the same as a gathered assembly. A potluck is not the same thing as a Bible study. If you miss one of those things, the, a potluck or a picnic, your spiritual life probably will not be affected. But when we mess with things of eternal significance, the local church, the, the importance of God's established local church, problems begin to happen. And this is what Paul's dealing with in his letter. He, he's dealing with a church that is problematic, a church that's splitting, a church that's being broken because leaders are, are gathering their camps. And it's a danger that we find ourselves in today as Christians. If truth is eroded or abandoned, we have no foundation so we stand for the one thing that doesn't change, the truth of the gospel known through the truth of God's word. This is the only thing that we can stand upon. And because we believe that God's word is truth, we are right to put our hope in Christ alone. Jesus is our only hope. Paul says in verse 1 that Christ Jesus is our hope. In English, we use the word hope for all kinds of things. Teenagers, I, I really hope that girl likes me. 
I hope that this loan comes through. I hope that I don't lose this client. I hope that I get that job. These aren't satisfying hope, is it? These examples do not give any satisfaction to us because we're blindly waiting for something to be done for us. But we don't know that's going to happen. It's hope and something that we want, but we're not guaranteed. Now, the way that Paul writes about hope, it can be used that way. The Greek word can be used as hope that way. But when you see 1 Timothy in the context of the entire Bible, you see that Paul's hope is so much more than wishful thinking. You see a hope in something that's promised. That he gives his entire life to this hope that what God says is true. It's more than just, well, let's hope this happens. Paul knows what Jesus has said. Paul knows that Jesus promised to return and to gather up his people to their eternal home and, and he will rule and we will be in his presence. Did Paul somehow forget that? Or do you think he had that in view when he was writing this letter? You see, Paul was writing to encourage Timothy, a young pastor. And what is more encouraging? Listen, when you're going through a struggle, when you're going through a difficult time in life, what is more encouraging than for someone to stand with you and to say, Jesus is going to fix this one day? That no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what struggles or trials that you're facing, that Jesus is with you. And Paul is saying that here. Saying, Timothy, brother, friend, partner in ministry. Truth matters. Doctrine matters. What's happening in the church matters. Why? Because you have hope in Christ alone. And since our hope is in Christ, that must mean that there are things that our hope is not in. The common statement that I've heard is, is that Christians should talk about what they're for, not what they're against. And I get the sentiment. It's nice. But when we say we're for something, it naturally means that we're not for other things, right? When we say that Jesus is the only way to salvation, the only way to reach God, the only way to answer all of the problems that we face, and the only solution for our sin, we're saying everything else is wrong. That there is no other way. There is no other path. Every other way is wrong. You say, well, that sounds kind of mean. Well, Jesus said these things. He spoke about people who abused others. He, he called the religious leaders whitewashed tombs, saying that they looked clean on the outside, but inside they were dead. It's negative, isn't it? Some people want to. Some people say that we shouldn't speak of these negative things because it makes people leave. But these are things that we must take a stand on, things that are essential to the faith. And what's happening in Ephesus is that people were breaking apart and disagreeing over the essentials. So the first thing we see in this passage is that our hope should stand, should never be in bad doctrine. 
And Paul says that in verse 3, that Timothy must stay in Ephesus so he can control what's being taught there. I don't know if you've put much thought into this. I live this world. This is all that I think about. It consumes me. I can never turn it off. I'm a pastor. Even if I weren't a pastor, this is what I would want to do. I'd want to serve in the local church. But if you think about what a pastor or elder does, it means the same thing. What what is it that they do? Uh, They preach. They teach. They pray. They counsel. They study. They listen. They read. Why? Why do elders do this? Why do we invest so much of ourselves and our time? It is to protect doctrine. It is to protect you as church members from falling into things that are tricky or that they, uh, things that will draw us in, things that are attractive but yet wrong. Maybe this illustration will help. Bad doctrine is kind of like living next to a a big tree. Everybody likes trees. They give a shade. They're pretty. They provide a place for birds to, to nest in and sing. And, and, and we like to hear when the wind blows. We like to hear the, the trees rustling in the wind. We all like this, right? But what happens when a tree is planted next to a house? Or what could happen? The roots begin to spread. And we've seen stories where houses are completely destroyed because the roots of a tree have spread out so far that they wreck the foundation of the house. This doesn't happen overnight. Years and years of growth. Slow and steady. And then one day you realize that your foundation is ruined. This is what bad doctrine does in a church And this is what pastors are called to do. We're supposed to be vigilant and thorough in the protection that we give to the church. We are shepherds. It's no accident that we're called shepherds and we're under shepherds of Christ. The shepherd watches the sheep and stands guard against wolves and other predators coming in to devour the flock. Why? Because if we lose sound doctrine, if we lose truth, Our house crumbles, and our flock is attacked. In addition to this, our hope is also not in bad teachers. I hope that this isn't the story of anyone here, but it is so easy to fall prey to someone on television, or someone who writes books, or someone who does podcasts. They talk about Jesus. They read from the Bible. Uh, they, they mention things that sound really good, but at the root of what they're speaking of, it, it's either not the gospel or it's some watered-down message that really has no transformative power. And I learned early on in my ministry that it's easy to talk about false doctrine. Everybody's okay with that. But the minute that you mention, hey, that guy's a heretic, that guy's not a healthy teacher, stay away from this person. The minute that we do that, problems start to happen. Why? Because we're attached to people, even if we don't know them. Our favorite authors, our our favorite uh, celebrity preacher... The minute that someone says that they're not healthy or they're not helpful, the gloves come off. We want to fight. 
But from my perspective as a pastor, if I'm obedient to what God demands of me as a shepherd, why would I want to tone down something that's this important? Why would I want to encourage people by my silence uh, to continue to be influenced by teachers who aren't teaching what the Bible says? We need to understand that there are false teachers, that there are people who claim to be followers of Christ, who claim to be teachers of the word, and yet they lead people astray. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We have a tendency as people to find teachers that we already agree with. We have a tendency to find teachers who are charismatic, who draw a crowd. We have a tendency to find people who, who we like the way they communicate. And Paul says, watch out. Watch out, they're leading people into myths. They're leading people astray. Paul is writing to a pastor, commanding him to preach the truth. There is nothing higher that a pastor can do than boldly proclaim God's word as the only inerrant source of truth about God. You think if this was needed in the early church for church in Ephesus, my goodness, it's needed for us too, isn't it? Many people won't like this. On the, on the surface, it's not kind or welcoming to, to those who disagree with our theological perspectives, but it's what Scripture says. I could come here and preach every week a sermon that is fluffy and kind. I could preach on how God wants you to have a wonderful life. I could show some video clips. We, we could talk about having to have a better marriage or, or how to raise kids that obey you. I, I, we could talk about how to have more money and, and, and do all of those things. I, I could preach that, but what about giving a defense for what we believe? What about the truth of God's word? Picking and choosing doesn't answer the questions that we all face every day. Pastors and elders are commanded to watch out for those in the church. In Acts 20, Paul spoke to the elders of the church in Ephesus, led by Timothy, and he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking with twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering the three years, for three years that I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Fierce wolves will come in with the intent to cause disruption, hurt others, and defame the name of Christ. They will devour you or attempt to. They will spread shame and slander. They will split churches and call all sorts of problems. And Paul, under the power of the Holy Spirit, commands the Ephesian elders to watch out for this because the church matters. If your hope is in Christ, it cannot be in false teachers. 
Romans 16, Paul urges the church to stay far, far away from anyone who preaches a false gospel. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your own obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and, and as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We should never do anything that splits or causes people to not feel welcome. But the truth is, if it's at the cost of the gospel, I'm okay with people feeling unwelcome. My job as an as a under-shepherd to Christ is to protect the church from false doctrine seeping in. And here's a question. Would you allow someone to come into your house and slander your spouse? Would you allow someone to come into your home and speak negative, unkind words about your mother? Would you allow someone to come in your house and say untrue things about your children? What Paul is saying is that there are people who want to come into this house and say things that are not true about our God. And as leaders, we are commanded by God to serve as your shepherds, protecting you from wolves that are ready to come in and attack. And we do live in an individualized culture where someone would say, no, I can handle it myself. I can deal with it. No one needs to help me. But Hebrews 13, 17 says that leaders must give an account for the souls of all of those in their care. And so I have to ask you this. Why would the writer of Hebrews put that in there? Why would the Holy Spirit empower him to write this if there was not a concern about wolves? We don't talk about dinosaurs coming to attack us, do we? We're not worried about a Tyrannosaurus Rex today. Woolly mammoths marching down the street. Why? They don't, they, they're not here. They don't exist anymore. But in God's unchanging word that is applicable to us today, it says, watch out. Take care. We see this in 2 Peter 2, but false prophets arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. If everyone who calls themselves a pastor is okay, why do we need this? If all that matters is someone has a platform and talks about Jesus, they must be good, right? This is what Paul says. They sneak in. Their destruction is subtle. It's like that tree that grows over the years and it expands under someone's house to destroy what's left. False teaching doesn't come in with doors wide open. False teaching comes in through the back. And it sneaks in. 
And when it infects, it spreads and spreads and spreads until the church is split. They cause, cause harm to the body of Christ. They destroy churches. They cause pain and suffering. They are wicked and blasphemous. They must be avoided. They must be called out by name. It's not unkind or unloving. We stand for the truth. We name names. We proclaim that anyone who teaches a message contrary to the gospel is a false teacher. Anyone who says that God's purpose in, in the gospel is to make us wealthy and live wonderful lives is a false teacher. Anyone who says that there is another way to salvation is a false teacher. They are not of Christ. And in verse 4, we see that the next thing our hope is not in is speculations. Verse 4 says, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And just as a warning, this is not talking about tracing your family history. This is, this is not saying that going to Ancestry.com is somehow sinful. I've heard people misuse this verse in that way. No, what Paul was warning about was that many people of this time uh, had become uh, devoted to the Old Testament and distorted what it says and created these myths about creation. Be careful not to dismiss this simply because we have a good hold on theology. We may not put our hope in false teachers who claim to know about creation, but how often do you hear of people who claim to be Bible teachers and they say that they have some knowledge that no one else has come up with before? Some secret knowledge or secret insight to Scripture. See, Paul was warning Timothy in the church in Ephesus that he was hoping to get them away uh, from buying into false doctrine or even unimportant doctrine and instead focus on the simple message of the gospel. This is, this is what Tim, uh, Paul is writing to. He's saying that they're going off into these myths. They're trying to figure out some way to be innovative. A good rule of thumb is someone who comes and says something that you've never heard before or that you've never read in Scripture. Red flags should go up. Let the Bible speak for itself. So the false teachers in Ephesus were not only teaching bad doctrine, they were speculating about things that they couldn't know, and they were devoting themselves to the law in the Old Testament. They were misusing it. You say, well, what purpose is the law? The law does three things. It serves as a restraint against doing bad things. Ten Commandments, really, really good things to not do, right? Or to do. Honor the Lord. Have no idols. Never misuse God's name. Honor your father and mother. Right? We, those are good things to do. The second thing that the law does is it is a mirror for us. I, I mentioned Wednesday night with our, our young ones as we're doing our study. I said, what is the law? We're studying the Ten Commandments. I said, what is the law? And the law is kind of like when we go into a, a, a place and someone says, man, you got dirt all over your face. We've all been in that uncomfortable situation, right? Maybe you've had chocolate cake. You still got some left around your face. Maybe you had some ice cream and you didn't clean up. You don't feel it. You don't know that it's there. Maybe you have something stuck in your teeth. And someone points it out to us, and what is the first thing we do? We run for a mirror. And if it's a good mirror, not one of those like in the gym that makes me look like I've got muscles, but a real good mirror with good lighting, it doesn't lie. It tells us exactly what we look like. 
And so when we stand in front of the mirror and we see chocolate all around our mouths, we know there's chocolate all around our mouths. And the, the law in the Old Testament does the same thing. It serves as a mirror so that when we stand before it, we look and we see we don't measure up. That we are inadequate to meet God's standard. When we look at that, we see ourselves for who we really are. And the third thing that the law does is it serves as a guide to show us what pleases God. So whatever was being taught in the church in Ephesus uh, didn't fall into one of these three points because Paul says, watch out for these guys. Uh, Maybe Old Testament laws that were not applicable to the church were being said that you had to do those to be saved. It's a common thought. So according to what Paul says, what happens when we have bad theology? What happens when teachers are allowed to come into a church and teach whatever that they want? You get verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10 is the outcome of having no restraints, of having no uh, protection, no guide rails when we talk about our theology. You want a culture that isn't full of godlessness and sin? Since Adam, there hasn't been one. But it should show us that the goal of what we do as a church is not, it is not trying to simply change people's behavior. Our goal is not to make sinners behave themselves and to act like Christians. People who aren't Christians are going to act like they're not Christians, right? As one guy said, heathens are going to heathe, right? We're going to behave in a way of what we really are unless God has moved in our hearts and we've been changed by the power of the gospel. We cannot expect people who don't know Christ to act like they know Christ. Trying to change someone and their behavior is a disservice without the transformative power of the gospel. If we're focused on telling someone that they simply need to change their behavior without understanding the gospel is what changes our behavior, we're cleaning the outside and leaving the dead inside. As one pastor said, we're air conditioning the train to hell for people. We're burdening people beyond anything that they can or should ever carry. It's psychology and self-help. It's not the gospel. Belief and adherence to the gospel will... promise will bring change but behavioral change is not the message that we preach i don't care about changing someone's behavior i care about bringing the gospel so that god will move in their hearts and that they will come to a knowledge of jesus and they will be changed forever from the inside out we preach that all of our good works are like filthy rags because when compared to the perfection of christ they are All that striving and working will never be enough, but praise the Lord, we are not stuck in verses 9 and 10. If your hope is rooted in Christ and in Christ alone, you know your future is promised. You know that from Genesis to Revelation and to now, God has promised us a future free from the effects of sin and suffering. It's a future that gives us motivation to go and tell the world how they can know Christ. But you only know that if your hope is found in Christ. If you place your hope in false teachers and false doctrine or even your good works, you will never know the peace that comes from a right relationship with Christ. So today I want to challenge you to find those areas in your life. 
Think clearly, what are those things in my life, whether it's a, a teacher uh, that, that, that may have some good stuff but maybe have some bad stuff in there? Uh, uh, maybe it's that you're holding on to a doctrine that is not found in Scripture. Maybe it's your abilities and your good works. Whatever it is, I want you to bring it before the throne of Christ and rid yourself of all that is holding you back from seeing the gospel on full display. Would you pray with me?